I would encourage educators to not let their fear of not being able to do it perfectly stop them from doing it at all. Because we've said several times you have to be flexible, that things don't always go as planned. And that's true. It's not laboratory research where you can control all the variables. But we still are learning so much and it's really valuable. And I'm glad that we're embracing the mess and doing it anyway. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And this episode is the second in a series highlighting the best practices of and lessons learned by members of the Learning Assembly, a national network of regional nonprofits that designs programs to pilot personalized learning and ed tech with schools. In this series, we are hearing from members of the group about what they believe are the most important lessons they've learned in their work for districts and schools looking to pilot new programs. In the first episode in this series, we spoke with members of Boston-based Learn Launch. For this podcast, Eric connected with two Learning Assembly members, both from the Highlander Institute, Laura Jackson, a project manager, and Joshua Marland, director of data and analytics. The Highlander Institute cultivates and disseminates innovative education solutions that improve educator and system capacity to provide personalized experiences for every learner. You can learn more about them and their work at www.highlanderinstitute.org. I also spoke with Cameron Bay Rube, Director of Curriculum and Instruction for Providence Public Schools, a participant in one of Highlander's pilots, in order to hear a bit more about what her district learned in the process of implementing their early pilots. In my conversation with these three, I had a chance to learn about some of the more technical factors that go into pilot design, including sample size, pilot duration, collaboration between districts and their edtech partners, and the importance of using data to its full potential. To start, we asked our CEO, Tom Vanderark, to tell us a little bit about pilot design. School districts are complicated, and they're all different. Schools that operate within districts are complicated and different as well. Culture, teachers, students are different from place to place. Take, for example, our uh, friends at Curriculum Associates and a product like iReady. It can be used periodically like a map assessment to measure growth. You can use it periodically in a lab rotation model. You could use it three times a week in a class rotation model. You could use it for math in one school and reading in another school, both in a third school. Some schools might use it in grades three to eight. Other places might just use it in grades four to six. All of that difference makes designing pilots really tricky. And what works for one school and district might not work for another. As a result, it's important to tailor the approach and the trial size and duration to the capabilities of the district and to develop relationships with EdTech vendors to meet the needs of each district. As you think about pilots, be as rigorous as you can without putting too much stress on the system. Start small if you need to, and then scale up. The key is listen hard, measure everything that you can, and reflect on what you're learning. But try a pilot next year. To start my conversation with Highlander Institute, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the organization and their work with Providence Public Schools from Laura and Joshua. So, Laura and Josh, could you each tell us a little bit more about Highlander Institute and what your role is? Sure, I'll start. Highlander is an education nonprofit based in Providence, Rhode Island, and we work with schools and districts, mostly in the state, but also in the region, to implement innovative approaches to teaching and learning. And in the past few years, that has focused largely on blended and personalized learning. And then the project that I'm most closely involved in and that I help manage is the EdTech RI Testbed which is essentially a a research project where we match educators with ed tech products and then study the impact. 
So this is Joshua. My role at the Institute is to support in the development of the instruments that we use to drive organizational learning, the data collection systems that we use to kind of gather the data that are important to the organization, and then to, to organize so that we can report out to our, our partners um, and share what we're learning through the process. Great. Thank you both. Cameron, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the work that Highlander Institute did with Providence Public Schools? So currently, Highlander is a key partner for our district as we move towards more personalized instruction. In particular, with a focus on testbed, what we see is personalized learning needs to allow teachers themselves to have more voice and choice over the products that they're utilizing in their classroom. We as a district have started a vendor fair that we have annually. And at that vendor fair, central office personnel work to kind of pre-vet products to ensure that they're aligned to standards. And we have a criteria that we utilize to determine if the products are effective for the types of students that we want our schools to be supporting. And when we found out about the test bread option, we were excited to work with Highlander to dig a little deeper into once we make a selection or a choice for a product, how do we know the levels and types of impact that it's having both for teacher use and for student use? What Highlander has supported us with is having a more robust way to understand that type of impact in a classroom. Our school board has been very significant as well in supporting us in how are you using your investments wisely? For a long time as a district, we just continued with the same product year over year. And this work with Highlander has supported us in understanding more deeply what do we need to be thinking about around teacher usage? What do we need to be thinking around student usage? Further, what impact does it have on the child in terms of their academic achievement? So Eric, what was the first big lesson that it sounded like Highlander had to share? The first big theme that I noticed was that it's important to decide on a pilot size large enough to provide good insights, but small enough to be manageable and high quality. First and foremost, capacity is an issue. We want to be able to go out and actually get into classrooms and do observations and collect data in a way that can be sort of time consuming and labor intensive. So that limits our scope to some extent. And then also because we partnered with Providence on products that they were already using, in some ways there were natural groups to look at. So for example, we are doing a, an implementation study of the Summit Basecamp model that they're using in a few of their schools. And so it made sense for the district to start small and pilot that model with a relatively small group um, so that they could learn and course correct before they adopt it more widely, if that's what they choose to do. So that kind of led some of the design in that sense. So our studies, you know, relatively are pretty small. We have about 60 teachers participating and about 1,500 students. You know, anytime you have a smaller end size, of course, it limits you somewhat in the inferences you can make from a study. But we feel like the the flip side is that we have a number that we can manage and, like I said, get the kinds of data that we are really interested in having to round out just the pure student achievement data, um, assessment-based data. So getting into classrooms, observing instruction, interviewing teachers and students, um, and doing quite a bit of surveying, which we were able to do this year. That's really interesting. And Joshua, this might be a question that there isn't a solid answer to, but I'm curious, is there a minimum size group of educators and students that you would consider using for a pilot? I mean, I think it depends on the research design because I would, in the inferences that you're trying to make. So you could do an implementation study with just a few people and then just go really deep with those few people to really understand the practices that are changing in their classrooms. I think if you're trying to make inferences about student learning, for instance, 
you know, with our, like our efficacy studies, you would typically want to go wider in terms of the net and you want to get, you know, more teachers and more students so that you're able to, you know, maybe generalize to more types of students. So it definitely depends. I mean, there are kind of like rules that we have in statistics around like a minimum sample size that you would need to make reasonable inferences about students. But I don't have like a, I don't necessarily follow a rule of thumb because it also depends on like effect size that you're looking for. All that's to say, I don't really have a minimum number. You know, we're also, as an organization, and recognizing that we're doing kind of like practical research, we just have to be flexible. And, you know, we kind of pivot when we have to, to maybe a smaller N or a larger N, depending on the opportunities that present themselves throughout the course of the year. Sometimes we might have to go smaller if we have, um, if something changes with, you know, a certain group of teachers or a school or something like that. Since finding this right pilot size was such a key lesson, I wondered if pilot duration might also play a significant role. Perhaps not surprisingly, this also turned out to be one of the big lessons that Highlander had to share. Joshua, you mentioned that you might vary the size of the study for an efficacy versus an implementation pilot. Is Does the same hold true for the duration of pilots? It's, I think it really comes down to what you're trying to measure and the kind of theory of change about how long it takes for that thing to change as a result of the kind of intervention. So for instance, you know, we're doing middle of year to end of year change in star assessments, for instance, that's a three month cycle. So then they implemented the product right before the middle of the year and they'll use it through the end of the year. So we would expect to see the change that took place from using that product. But it might be, you know, with the park score, for instance, it might take longer to change, in which case we would want to align like an intervention to the full year for the park score. So it really depends on uh, what it is that you're ultimately trying to change. And I think for, in this case with products and kind of introducing them to a classroom, we might expect to see some change, but that might not always be the case as well. Initially, we started this project years ago. This is our sort of second iteration. And initially, the idea was to do what we were calling short cycle trials. So we were thinking they would be eight weeks or 12 weeks. And that idea was really appealing to startup ed tech companies and researchers who wanted to be able to get data quickly and have information to turn around quickly. But when we got out and started working with teachers, they were very clear that they weren't interested in having a software sort of dropped into their classroom mid-year, nor were they interested in learning a software, introducing it to their students, becoming accustomed with its quirks and learning how to review the data and then having it taken away after eight or 12 weeks. They showed us that there's a real opportunity cost for them to introduce a new software in their classrooms. And so in the second year, we have you know skewed towards longer studies because that seemed to make more sense for the teachers and students using the products. And the last thing that we wanna do is waste instructional time for the sake of our study. So we were very sensitive to that. Interesting, Cameron, have you ever had any of the teachers in your district provide that sort of feedback to you? So I think from a district perspective, for us, always research has to be connected around what the needs are of the teacher. So I have received that feedback, I think. Um, and look, and it's thinking about what are the authentic data that we utilize as a district that it can be connected to. So the conversation about star data versus park data, you know, our teachers do want information back quickly, but they need time to ensure that what they're utilizing or how their students are utilizing it, they need to scale up time with us. So if it's a product that they've used year over year, I think like kind of length of time could be, you know, quicker depending upon the data that you're looking at. But if it's a product that they haven't used before, there is time and scaling for the teacher, the principal and the student to learn how to utilize that. And you want to make sure that the data 
that you're utilizing is accurate an accurate reflection. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today's episode is the second in a series sponsored by the Learning Assembly. The Learning Assembly is a network of learning innovators working alongside educators, edtech companies, and research partners to help schools pilot new technologies through research, professional development, assessment, and the sharing of evidence-based practices. To learn more about the Learning Assembly, visit their website at learningassembly.org. When we left off, Laura, Joshua, and Cameron had just shared some insight into basing pilot size and duration on a district's needs and goals. I wanted to hear a little bit more about some ways that districts can really make pilots work for them. So I think from a district perspective, for us, this is about, you know, research is important, but I think in terms of making decisions around pilots, there's several factors that we have to think about. So one is we tried to make sure that for the test bed research that it was connected to larger work that the individual schools were doing around personalized learning so that what the findings are from it can be utilized immediately in the classroom or in the school in terms of their decision making. I agree with Josh 100% around you have to be flexible and nimble to where we are as a district, but I think it's about what you want to do with that data as a district or as a school following the use of the pilot. And so For some cases here, we were intentionally piloting more slowly with the actual personalized learning work. So if you think about one of the studies that we did, we intentionally only have several schools utilizing it because the amount of time that it will take to scale up effectively is different than the other study where people could implement that more quickly in their classroom. And so we could have more individuals as participants. You know, I think when we started the the project this year with Providence, we really let the district's work guide us. We wanted to have authentic questions that the district really wanted the answers to, as opposed to kind of designing the perfect research study in the abstract. So we focused on some products that the district was already using, and they were interested in knowing, you know, are they effective? Are they something we should be investing in year after year? And then others that were new to the district or being piloted that they you know, wanted to learn more about and, and figure out if that was worth scaling in the district. Those authentic questions and the products that the district selected really guided a lot of the research design. So Eric, this reminds me of something that we heard on the first episode of the series with Learn Launch and Roosevelt K-8. And it's really that idea that it's super important to develop an approach to piloting a new program that's tailored to your own goals and capabilities. I think that's right, Megan. It also sounded like Laura and Cameron were implying that it's important for edtech vendors to play a role in the pilot implementation process. And since this was another point that Learn Launch had briefly brought up in their interview, I wanted to hear a bit more from Highlander on the subject. It turned out that this was another one of the key points that they had to share. Laura and Joshua had this to say. For me, I think what I've learned sounds very obvious now, but wasn't as clear to me when we started, which is just how important it is to have all the parties at the table from the beginning to understand the goals, the timelines, the deliverables, and the dependencies. Um, You know, I think that various parties come into this with different ideas about how it will work and different expectations around how quickly things can be turned around. So I've learned that small organizations like Highlander and many ed tech companies, especially newer ones that are small, there's a culture of let's just do this now and a tendency to underestimate how long things take in a district. Most public school districts are slow moving and and we as partners need to recognize that and design around it. So I think being realistic about timelines and not sort of rushing the process is critical and also the importance of just getting everyone at the table from the onset to 
to make sure that those lines of communication are open and that expectations are realistic and clear. I actually don't have anything to add to that. I think that Laura summed it up pretty nicely. I nailed it. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Laura. Cameron, what, what do you think? I think there's a couple of pieces to it. I think one piece is also understanding the district. So in a large urban district, there's typically multiple people who serve in roles. So if, you know, Highlander's going to work with our district versus a smaller district, right, that says, say, has only 3,000 students. In the smaller district, there'll be one person that's doing all of those roles. And then in our district, there's multiple people that have to be at the table for the conversations that Laura's talking about. Each of those people may not understand the other person's part of the pie. So a good example is we had one vendor who wanted to work in our district. And I'm not an IT person, right? I know the teaching and learning side of the house. And so it was a product that I felt like I knew would be important and work well for my teachers and my students to get to our end goal that we wanted to get to. What I didn't understand was data interoperability on the back end and whether both our district and our state level were actually up to snuff to be able to do what we need to do for that product. And so I think it requires cooperation and collaboration, not just with the ed tech vendor and say myself, but making sure that the cooperation is with the right people, both at the vendor's location and then also in my location. Because to, to Laura's point, for some of the larger ed tech companies, they have multiple parties that I have to make sure that I'm interfacing with. So it's making sure that you have the right people at the table at the time, making sure that you're asking the right questions, right? Sometimes you don't know what the right questions are to ask. And then understanding the perspective of each party. So I can say, you know, in the work with Highlander, we joke around about about how much time it takes for our district to do things. But also we, I think, have come to a, a place in our cooperation on as much as I have the will and want things to move quicker, I know like the bureaucracy that I sit within. And so I try to make sure that I'm always clear at the outset in our relationship or when we're going to move forward on a project on how long I think it actually will take for something to happen, even though I too would want it to happen faster. But if we didn't have a true um, collaborative relationship it, it's hard for people to sit in the seat of other people and understand the time that it would take for something. But collaboration is kind of the way forward because without it, all parties could have the will, but if we don't dig under the covers and get into, you know, the real um, heart and essence of where we have to go to implement, right? You have to be able to have open lines of communication to get there because there'll be hiccups. It's so interesting that the collaboration between the EdTech vendors and the districts was important enough for both LearnLaunch and Highlander to bring up. Both make it clear that they found a real wealth of benefits associated with having a strong relationship with the EdTech vendor. I think you're right. On a slightly different note, I was curious to know more about, if a district does decide to work with a research partner, how important that relationship is. It turned out this was the final big lesson they had to share. Because we were focused on one district, a district where we have relationships that we've built over years, we were able to establish a data sharing agreement. So this year we'll actually be able to review student achievement data. And for the efficacy studies that we're doing, that is really critical. You know, we found in the past that without that, we're really kind of left with anecdotes and testimonials and it isn't robust enough to answer the questions that we wanted to answer. So that was really important. And then the other piece is that we did also collect a fair amount of qualitative data from teachers and students about their experience using these various products. And for that piece, I think one thing we've learned that's really critical is identifying the right teams of teachers who are also really interested in these research questions and committed to the pilot because we rely on them heavily to be able to get good data. 
Laura's language about securing data sharing agreements made it sound like there was more to that story, and I wanted to hear more. You mentioned uh, securing data sharing agreements. Is that a challenge, and how do you go about doing that? It is a challenge. I'm going to let Josh sort of take a stab at this one because he led that process between Highlander and Providence. Sure. Um, So the process typically varies across districts. Providence definitely is one of the more rigorous districts we work with in terms of really being incredibly thoughtful and about how the data are going to be used. So we spent a couple of months, I think, working with Providence and really establishing the research questions, the schools where we'll be doing the work, and then the appropriate uses for the data once we have it. We continue to have those conversations with them. Even last week, we were still talking with folks to really further refine what we're going to evaluate and what we'll be able to tell Providence at the end of the summer about the test fed studies. You know, it's a lot of back and forth with really kind of as we learn more about what we need to answer, we we kind of go back and forth with Providence a lot to just make sure that we're getting them exactly what they need so that they can make thoughtful decisions about the products they're using. Absolutely. When we think about the amounts of data that are available through EdTech, you can really see how it'd be important for districts to have a clear plan for data usage and the ability to share that data with all the necessary partners. For sure. With all their great insights in mind, I asked if they had any final thoughts to contribute. Laura, Cameron, and Joshua, do you have any final words of wisdom that you would like to share? I think that this type of work is going to grow in districts, that we talk a lot in education about database decision-making at the classroom level, but that isn't happening enough at the district level sometimes with regard to edtech products. Often it's a capacity issue that districts just don't have the time and the expertise to be doing this kind of research in-house. So I think that these types of partnerships are really important. And so I would encourage districts who are interested in doing this kind of work but don't necessarily have the capacity to do it themselves to look out in their community and see if there are research partners who they can work with. And then the other piece is, I would say, because it is action research, practical research, I would encourage educators to not let their fear of not being able to do it perfectly stop them from doing it at all. Because we've said several times you have to be flexible, that things don't always go as planned. And that's true. It's not laboratory research where you can control all the variables. But we still are learning so much and it's really valuable. And um, I'm glad that we're embracing the mess and doing it anyway. Change isn't going to happen overnight, or at least not big change. And I think that, and we certainly get that, and we have to be patient. We're also starting to benefit from having this kind of longer-term relationship with Providence. We're, we're finishing the end of year two of the test bed, and I don't, you know, and we hope to continue doing that. But I think we continue to learn through the process about what really works for PPSD or research in PPSD, and we're learning as an organization. As long as you're patient, you can continue to, to kind of keep maintaining that relationship and building new relationships within a district as well. Research should have the intention of having impact at the end of the day in the classroom, right? Like how I can put my head on the pillow every night is that I know that I've done everything I can for all of the kids that live in Providence, and I'm doing the best that I can to ensure that they have access to a quality education. That's why I'm here every day. And so I think if you have to do a smaller sample size, but you have to do it in a way to get that teacher in the classroom what they need to help the students in their classroom reach their potential, then you have to make that decision. I think there are disadvantages that you want to then be able to scale up. And so maybe you start small and then figure out, are you asking the right questions or you're doing the research the right way? And then you gain trust and relationships with the teacher and it'll allow you to, to Josh's point in that district to then have the the district get to a place where they're like, well, 
I think that the research that we actually want to do is this, right? Because sometimes there's some digging you have to do to get to the real root cause. So I would say don't be discouraged by sample size. I think it's an entry point. And as long as what you're coming to at the end with your report out is going to support teachers in improving their practice and support students in reaching high levels of achievement, it's worth it. So this was a really great conversation, Eric. Laura, Joshua, and Cameron all had some really great insights to share. I totally agree. I felt very lucky to be able to speak with them. I think some of the key insights revolved around the importance of determining a pilot size and duration that will work for your district, both in terms of developing quality data, but also in terms of being functional without disrupting classroom practice. Their focus on the importance of collaboration between districts and edtech vendors, along with the establishment of data sharing agreements when necessary, were also some really valuable ideas to keep in mind. I'm struck by how it seems like there isn't really this one-size-fits-all approach to pilot design, but there are definitely some common themes around strategy and implementing tools with fidelity. Yeah, that's something that really stuck out to me as well. Well then, I think that's all for today. Thank you so much to Laura and Joshua of Highlander Institute, a Learning Assembly member, for speaking with us today and for sharing their expertise. And to Cameron of Providence Public Schools in Rhode Island for sharing her district's experience with developing a pilot. Thanks to Eric Day for podcast production and to Kyle Bishop for mixing. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to check out the others in the series as we release them throughout the month of June. This podcast is part of a series sponsored by the Learning Assembly a network of nonprofits working to help schools effectively implement new technologies and personalized learning programs. Keep an eye out for our next entry in the series, when we'll be talking with Kristen Howell of Leap Innovations in Chicago. And be sure to visit the Learning Assembly's website at learningassembly.org. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Megan. And Eric. Signing off.